Hello, and welcome back to the Whiskey Rebels, the only podcast about alcohol where the hosts aren't getting drunk. I'm Drew Brackbill. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm John Nelson. And today we're back with another balanced, sober discussion about the philosophical, economic, and regulatory history of alcohol. (laughs) And today we're going to be talking about the history of rum, uh, most famously consumed by Captain Jack Sparrow in the Pirates of the Caribbean. Why is the rum always gone? (laughs) That's the one you pick as famous rum drinker? You could have gone like, with Ernest Hemingway, or I don't know. I didn't know he drank rum. Oh yeah, he drank you ask every, every single one he of he invented our the followers. mojito. Did you not know that? No, no one. Well, knows actually, that. I'm You're not sure. You're the one person in the world that knows that. I, viewers, listeners, I don't think that's actually true. But he was a big fan of the mojito, so that's All right, fair. I anyway. just thought he. I thought he was the absinthe guy. Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't. Can we talk about him? You that? know what? We're getting off topic here. <laughs> it's literally okay. already. Yeah, First sentence your, of the podcast. Jack Sparrow. Um, anyway, rum is a very popular drink in Latin America and around the world. Uh, it's certainly not my favorite, but I have had some pretty good ones recently. Um, and they were really good. Ones from like Jamaica and the Caribbean. Um, they're very sweet, but and the dark ones I think are really good. What about you guys? What has what your been experience with rum? Yeah, it's funny we're talking about this now because over the last like month or two, like sort of my go-to drink at like mixed drink at least at bars has been uh, dark and stormy, mm. which is mm. basically it's basically a Moscow Mule but with uh, like a dark rum instead of vodka. It's really good. Well, it does sound. Uh, you know what? Here's the thing. It's all about the ginger beer. You mix any hard alcohol with ginger beer, and it tastes very good. That's fair. Sure. I think that's just the that's just the rule. Uh, I don't really have much of an opinion of rum because uh, I don't Not drink it very much. Doesn't have because, an opinion uh, on something. That's <laughs> like the first time ever. Josh, I'm doing a bit. I was going to say because the rum is always gone, so I don't get to. That's a callback to a minute earlier. So uh, I don't actually have much of an opinion on rum, which I know is is insane because I have an opinion on everything. Um, it's fine. I, I like. I prefer light rums if I have to drink it. There's you know the mojito. I'll drink a mojito. My mom, the crazy thing about any, if there's any drink that my mom would drink, I'm kind of like skeptical of that drink. <laughs> and my mom really loves mojitos. But here's the thing. I love me a mojito. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's very good. It's a very, uh, it's very flavorful and like uh, refreshing. So yeah. yeah right. Some interesting uh, mother relationship and issues to unpack there. Yeah, but we're not going to go another episode. We're not going to uh, go into that right now. Um, but as we discussed in our episode on the history of whiskey, and definitely go listen to that if you haven't already, uh, most spirits are made through the method of distillation, which, as a reminder, is the process of separating different substances from a liquid mixture by selective evaporation and condensation. Uh, you can evaporate the, the liquid, and th- you can take the alcohol off of that through condensation. Um, so while whiskey is made from a fermented mixture of grains, such as barley, rye, or corn, rum is usually made from molasses or sugarcane. Some rum producers allow wild yeast to begin in the fermentation process on its own, um, but most use specific strains to help provide a con- more consistent taste and predictable fermentation time. Yeah, and etymologists are not sure about the origin of the word rum, uh, but Samuel Morwood, who's a, a British etymologist, suggested that it might be from the British slang term as in having a rum time, which where did that come from, right? I thought That's that came question. from, I thought that was from if you were having a rum time, we're having fun because you're drinking a lot of rum, but but I guess I I'm not maybe, an etymologist. So maybe I'm know. yeah. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, but given the harsh taste of early rum, this is unlikely. Okay, there we go. So Morewood later suggested that it was taken from the last syllable of the Latin word for sugar, saccharum. Huh. Well, other etymologists have mentioned the Romani word rum, meaning strong or potent, 
Another claim is the name is from the large drinking glasses used by Dutch seamen mm-hmm. known as rummers from the Dutch word romer, which means a drinking glass. It, that's definitely it. It's that yeah, one. It's probably yeah. that one, but it's hard to tell. I mean, if etymologists don't know, there's no way we know. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Historical accounts suggest that uh, rum-like drinks made from fermented sugar cane juice were produced in ancient China, Malaysia, uh, possibly like a few thousand years ago. Uh, the ancient Malay people produced a drink called brum, uh, which is an early ancestor of rum. And around 300 BC, Alexander the Great found sugarcane, uh, the plant from which rum is made, and called it the uh, the grass that gives honey without bees. One of the uh, earliest written accounts that mentions a uh, rum-like drinks comes from uh, Marco Polio. Marco. Marco Polio. Marco Polio. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm not going to make any jokes about that. <laughs> From uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's least that favorite That was going to be my joke. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, comes from Marco Polo in the 14th century. Uh, he wrote that hey, uh, a very good wine of sugar that was offered to him in this uh, in the area that uh, became modern-day Iran. So, uh, although uh, rum is kind of known for its, its Caribbean heritage, uh, rum is made in many different regions of the world. Unlike drinks like whiskey, dividing rum into meaningful groupings can be sometimes complicated because there's no really single standard uh, for what rum really is. Um, Even within the Caribbean, each islander region has its own unique style. For the most part, these styles can be grouped by the language traditionally spoken there. So English-speaking islands and countries are known for their darker rums with a fuller taste. Uh, It kind of retains a greater amount of the underlying molasses flavor that it's made out of. In Jamaica, a version called rude rum or... John Crow Batty is served, and it is reportedly much stronger in alcohol content than other rums. Hmm. Um, French-speaking islands are best known for their agricultural rums, uh, rum agricole. These rums, being produced exclusively from sugarcane juice as opposed to molasses, retain a much greater amount of the original flavor of the sugarcane, and they're generally more expensive than molasses-based rums. Um, The Spanish-speaking islands and countries traditionally produce añejo rums which have a very very smooth taste um and rum from the u.s virgin islands is also made in this style so those are your bacardis and your light white Mm -hmm. rums and my favorite kinds um the canary islands which aren't in the caribbean but are off the coast of africa uh produce honey rum known as ronmil de canarias and that carries a geographical designation so due to the overwhelming influence of puerto rican rum most rum consumed in the U.S. is produced in this Spanish style. Yeah, and as we said, you know, Canary Islands aren't in the Caribbean either, but um, there's a fair amount of other countries that do produce styles of rum outside of the Americas. Um, so in West Africa, and particularly in Liberia, there's a drink they just call cane juice or Liberian rum. Um, and it's a cheap, strong spirit distilled from sugar cane, similar to other, other drinks. Uh, a refined cane spirit has also been produced in South Africa since the 1950s, and simply known as cane. Uh, within Europe, a few other countries make rums as well. In the Czech Republic, they produce a spirit made from sugar beet known as tuzemak. In Germany, uh, there's a cheap sp- substitute for, gen- for genuine dark rum. Uh, it's a thing called rum verschnicht. Uh, this distilled beverage is made of genuine dark rum, rectified spirit, and water. Uh, but the legal minimum of genuine rum in the drink is only about 5%. So Usually makers of this kind of rum only put 5% in it because you can make it a lot cheaper that way. Uh, in Austria, uh, there's a similar rum called Inlander rum, 
uh, I don't know if that's pronounced, but uh, or it's a kind of a domestic rum in Austria. Uh, and the big difference between the Austrian variation and the German version uh, is that the Austrian version is always spiced, whereas the German is never spiced. <laughs> Those Germans sure hate spices. <laughs> they don't like them. Um, so grading and variation terminology differs a lot between all the different countries. There are a few terms that are sort of generally useful. Uh, so you've got dark rums that are usually made from caramelized sugar, molasses. Uh, they're generally aged longer than their uh, than the other lighter versions um, in like very heavily charred barrels. Uh, then you've got gold rums that are more medium bodied. Uh, they're generally aged. They gain their dark color from that aging in wood barrels. So they have uh, more flavor. They're a little bit stronger than light rum, which has very little flavor aside from kind of a general sweetness. And uh, they're sometimes filtered uh, after aging to remove any kind of color. Uh, their milder flavor makes them really popular for use in mixed drinks. You know it. Yeah. The majority of light rums actually come from Puerto Rico. And then lastly, you've got spice rums, which, shockingly enough, get their flavors from the addition of spices and sometimes caramel. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, but these are mostly darker in color. They're usually like based from uh, gold rums. Uh, some of the spices that are added uh, might include cinnamon, rosemary, anise, pepper, cloves, or cardamom. And I think some of the reason why I've just never really been that big of a fan of rum is because I've always had like the stuff you're supposed to mix. Whereas like I just I just don't like the lighter you, you, rums. Like if you drunk it straight. But I've had, yeah, I mean I've had like darker stuff straight, and I really liked it. Mm. So like stuff actually from Jamaica was very good. So we earlier we kind of talked about you know the presence of rum. Um, in pir- movies like the Pirates of the Caribbean, um, and you also see it in books like Treasure Island. You kind of have this this sense of rum and pirates. What have they got to do with each other? And there's actually some historical backing for this. Um, rum was a very popular drink among British privateers, the Royal Navy, and yes, pirates in the uh, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Uh, so, where rum really came from for the Brits was in uh, the Royal Navy captured the island of Jamaica in 1655 where they really began to produce uh, rum from the sugarcane that they found there. Um, at that time, they then began giving sailors a daily ration of alcohol. They, they've, they did this for a very long time, but it used to be in, this French, in, the, in the form of French brandy, and they ended up switching to rum in this region because it was, it was cheaper and easier to, to deal with. And they didn't have to buy it from the damn French. And they didn't have to buy it from the damn French. Um, so the way this worked was at midday, every sailor received one-eighth of an imperial pint of rum. Um, officers generally drank theirs neat, uh, while the lower ranks received kind of a diluted rum, generally with two parts of water and one part of rum, and they called this drink grog. Um, amazingly, this practice was actually in place in the Royal Navy until 1970. Wow. So pretty recently, they still they did this every day. Uh, they, sailors got their, own, their daily ration of rum. Um, but they likely stopped this because drinking what? on the job? Not great when you have big machinery and things like that that the Navy has to worry about. So I, I cannot believe that that it took them that long to stop the, get letting sailors get <laughs> smashed on board well, Her it Majesty's. Wasn't, it wasn't smashed. Royal Navy. An eighth, of, an eighth of a pint's not going to get you crazy. That's but it's more than you well, probably yeah, should yeah, drink yeah. at noon. Yeah, That's but true. like the amount of like turntness I want on my like Navy ships on like people on like active duty on Navy ships is like zero. It's like negative. Not, it's like negative. Not, turn. not turned yeah. even a little bit. Wait, an eighth of a pint. That's like. That's like that much. That's well, actually, yeah, this next... Well, you can't see the amount that I'm like... This is not a visual yeah, medium, Drew, at yeah. all. It's although, not, it's you. kind of... It's not an insignificant Although it also probably it's made like it... a shot or two. It probably also makes a, a difference that 
naval rum was on average 95 to 110 proof. So it was like a normal proof is like 80. So this stuff was more alcoholic. So it was probably, it was probably a pretty good thing that they stopped doing that. Um, well, fun story. I mean, speaking about there being a higher proof to the average rum that was served in the British Navy, like there's this uh, legend about Horatio Nelson, John's uh, ancient ancestor, Horatio Nelson. Probably not related. No, he actually died uh, without any children. But um, there's a fun legend, I guess fun, kind of grim, a legend involving naval rum and Horatio Nelson, which says that following his victory and his death, ultimately at the Battle of Trafalgar, which was his greatest victory uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, when he just smashed Napoleon's fleets. Yeah, second Napoleon. <laughs> uh, Admiral Nelson's body was preserved in a cask of rum to allow it to be transported back to England without rotting so that he could have a big fancy state funeral because he was a gosh darn hero. And upon arrival, the cask was opened and it was found to be empty and it was discovered that the sailors had drilled a hole in the bottom of the cask and drunk up all the rum. <laughs> Hence the term Nelson's blood is sometimes used uh, to refer to strong naval kinds of things yeah, it's pretty gross yeah um i don't know i mean like honestly how many times do you get a chance to try like some corpse aged rum i mean i would do it just for the experience you know no <laughs> no <laughs> not, not rum that a hero had died in <laughs> like that's, that's the best do you want to go rum. to like i don't know navy navy the navy the navy circle of hell i don't it's been a it's been a long day <laughs> i don't know but like no, that, that one like, didn't even Navy that didn't Navy even make any sense. I prefer the khaki circle of hell. Khaki nice. All right, keep going. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, this led to the term Nelson's blood being used for rums, and it also serves as the basis for the term tapping the admiral being used to describe surreptitiously sucking liquor from a cask through a straw. I've never heard that term. I've never heard it either. I don't think. But it's a great term, tapping, and I hope it's a real thing. Tapping the admiral, I. <laughs> Well, it's, it's British uh, people. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to do with them. Um, anyways, like we mentioned, sailors in the Royal Navy were usually served rum in this form of grog, sort of like distilled uh, water, diluted rather, sort of watered down. Um, so they often would add citrus juice to that drink for the flavor, um, which would also like possibly inadvertently prevented scurvy. Then uh, pirates and short haul merchants who did their work in the Caribbean, uh, they also enjoyed their share of rum. Uh, although they often consumed it in a different form, uh, since their journeys were a lot shorter uh, and some had better diets than British sol- sailors, they replaced the citrus juice with sugar and nutmeg, and this better tasting drink was called Bubmo, which is really fun to say. Bubmo is pretty good. It's probably super sweet though, because <laughs> rum is like already get a sweet liquor, and then you add yeah. more spices and more sugar to it. That sounds it's probably delicious, actually. Pretty sounds, delicious sounds really though. Very good. So I just wonder like. In Pirates of the Caribbean, when uh, he's drinking that rum, is he like drinking? Is he drinking Bubmo, or is he drinking actual just, just that straight goody good? I, I doubt I Jerry Bruckheimer knew about <laughs> Bubmo. Yeah, I, I don't think there was a much historical research that went into Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, I, I don't think there was surprised. any historical research that went into Pirates of the Caribbean. They were like, "Hey, what are some names of islands in the Caribbean?" Uh, Tortuga, I think. <laughs> that was a real place, right? <laughs> yeah, that that existed. Question mark. I don't know. Anyway, uh. Speaking of rum in the Caribbean, the distillation of rum in the Caribbean actually began on sugarcane plantations in the 17th century, which was a pretty hellish, uh, hellish place to, to live, especially if you were a slave, because plantation slaves uh, were not treated very well. But they were the ones who first discovered that molasses, which was a byproduct of the sugar refining process, um, could be fermented into alcohol. 
and later distillation of these alcoholic byproducts concentrated the alcohol and removed impurities, producing the first true rums. So tradition suggests rum first originated on the island of Barbados. And a 1651 document from the island stated, and I will read this in a character voice, the chief fuddling they make in the island is rumbullion, alias kill devil, and this is made of sugar canes distilled to a hot, hellish, and terrible liquor. <laughs> That's not the worst one you've ever done. No, I was trying to channel my Jeffrey Rush. It uh, wasn't terrible. However, there is historical evidence for the existence of rum in both Brazil and, weirdly, Sweden in the early 1600s. Hmm. So, they have no idea like where it's from. <laughs> They just don't. Yeah, Sweden just seems way out there. Yeah, that's not like a. Is that, that doesn't seem like a kind of climate where sugarcane would grow. I'm almost 100 percent sure, certain that sugarcane is not native to Sweden. Yeah, I don't. No, but I think this. I mean, the Swedish. But they could probably Sweden. get molasses. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They probably got it in some way. Um. Anyways, uh, after it began to be produced in the Caribbean, rum pretty quickly became very popular in colonial America. The first North American rum distillery was constructed in modern-day uh, Staten Island in 1664, and then another one was built in Boston three years later. Uh, New England became a distilling center due to the skilled metal workers and coopers in the region, and there was also like an abundant source of lumber around there. The New English rum that was produced was uh, much lighter than Caribbean varieties. It was more like a whiskey. Uh, the drink even joined gold as a medium of exchange for a time in Rhode Island, which is kind of interesting, like a little... Mm parallel to sort of what we talked about before the yeah. uh, whiskey yeah, and we'll actually we'll actually get to that surprise, we'll actually get surprise. to that later um, when we talk about australia but rum and whiskey were generally in this in this time used as medium of exchange because yeah. gold was scarce you actually had to go mine the stuff rum you could just make and then pass it around um yeah and that is how that's how money works yeah, yeah and we really and, the you know <laughs> the most common medium of of effective exchange yeah and we yeah. saw we actually see this this phenomenon take place and kind of actually uphold the slave trade during this time. Um, the demand for rum and other sugar-based products really contributed to the demand for slave labor. So it was, it was kind of used to pay for slave labor, but it was also, you need slave labor to get this stuff. So it was kind of this vicious cycle. Yeah. Um, so we see this triangular trade system emerge between Africa and then they take things over to the Caribbean and then up to uh, the American colonies in, in New England. Um, so you see sugar molasses from the Caribbean are sent to New England, uh, where they're made into rum um, in Boston area and in different areas of New England. Uh, the rum and then other goods from New England are sent to Africa in exchange for the slaves. Um, then the slaves, of course, are shipped across the Atlantic back to the Caribbean, where they make sugar molasses, and thus it continues. Um, and this trade system was pretty self-sustainable and very profitable, really, for those involved, at least not the slaves, but the, the white people involved, at least. Uh, for most of the 17th and 18th centuries, it was a very successful and profitable system for kind of those with with the privilege of not being slaves, at least. Yeah, and I mean, the, the concept of the Atlantic Triangle and, and the, the triangular nature of the, of the slave trade is very, very sad. <laughs> um, but anyway, rum may also have played a role in the American Revolution, because the Sugar Act of 1764 and its predecessor, the Molasses Act of 1733, both disrupted the trade flow of sugar and molasses to New England, driving up the cost of producing and consuming rum. And this increase in cost and thus decrease in profits probably helped further breed tensions between the American colonists and the British crown. Uh, and, and, and it's very easy to blame. Uh, like it, We don't 
you know, they don't teach history in, in schools anymore. So people think that the revolution was all about, like, oh, the Stamp Act and everything. But, like, there were a lot of tensions that had been arising for many, many years between the colonies and England, and, and this certainly contributed to it. And even after the revolution was over, rum continued to play a predominant role in American politics. Yeah, uh, George Washington was a huge fan of rum from, from Barbados, uh, and he requested the, that rum at his inauguration party in 1789. Hmm. Uh, the drink was even used by political candidates in the 19th century as an attempt to win elections through their generosity with rum, uh, which I would really like for that to come back into yeah, fashion. Yeah, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be like, Barbara Comstock, I'll, I will vote for you if you give me rum. <laughs> I'll vote for anyone who gets me rum. <laughs> well... Yeah, which I mean that that is yeah. illegal now and probably not a bad thing. But again, I would not turn down rum for my vote. Uh, but anyways, by the 1830s, uh, however, tariffs and other restrictions on rum, sugar, and molasses imports had driven up the cost of producing and consuming rum. Then uh, the development of American whiskey and its increasing popularity among Americans led to a pretty significant decline in rum's popularity in North America. America wasn't the only British colony to gain a taste for rum. Uh, and the early colonists of New South Wales, which was Australia, uh, took a liking to the drink, and it was used as a substitute for gold, mainly due to gold's scarcity, which is ironic because people like went to Australia in search for gold, and it turned out there like, wasn't really any there. <laughs> um, yeah. No gold. Great beaches. Um, but rum was used as a medium of exchange in, in place of gold, uh, and... New South Wales was largely used as a penal colony, and rum was heavily consumed by the convicts living on the island. So due to rum's popularity, in case you didn't know that Australians were descended from criminals, like, <laughs> that's a, uh, but due to rum's popularity among the settlers, the colony gained a reputation for drunkenness, though their alcohol consumption was less than levels commonly consumed in England at the time, probably because rum was money, and they didn't want to drink their entire paycheck, literally drink their whole drink, paycheck. Literally drink their money um and since the colony was so far away from the homeland of britain um colonists kind of decided well hey we maybe we don't need to go to britain for everything um and they realized that their closer neighbor of india might actually be a better source for for certain supplies um so you see uh, around this time that australians began to import bengal rum uh, which is reported to be stronger than jamaican rum but not as sweet Mm. um this trade with india was banned by the governors of australia um, so traders often floated the cargo ashore before the ships were docked and inspected. Um, this illicit rum trade was pretty profitable for the officers of the New South Wales Corps, which was the Maverick military regiment that kind of governed the island. Um, and you know they would they would be able to buy up this rum because they're not really subject to laws because governments aren't subject to their own laws. Uh, and then they would use that money or that as a medium of exchange to buy things very favorable rates. Um, and basically be able to be able to become very rich off of it. Um, but this uh, this New South Wales Corps also comes into conflict with the established government, um, the, the governors there, and we'll explain that in a little bit. Um, yeah, Australia has actually a surprisingly complex early colonial history. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll get into a little bit of that soon. Um, uh, but it's not it's not just uh, the like common like trope like oh they were all prisoners <laughs> like. But I mean they were they but, were like, but they also there's a lot, there's also the a lot of complicated yeah. things going on. Um, but it wasn't just this, this, the military officers that got rich. You also see the Britons that were living in India at the time also kind of grew rich from this um, as they sent ships, quote, laden half with rice and half with bad spirits. The, <laughs> the rum from uh, India wasn't the, the best rum. 
But I guess it was it was better than paying top dollar for the Jamaican stuff. Yeah, I mean, hey, when you're in prison, you make do, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I've never been to prison. Uh, as we discussed in our very first episode, the Whiskey Rebellion is the most well-known alcohol-based rebellion, probably. At least in America. In America, yeah. Uh, and the inspiration for the name of this podcast. But America was, unsurprisingly, not the only British colony to have a rebellion based on a popular liquor because, you know, the British were known for their gentle treatment of their colonies and how everyone loved them. Um, But, yeah, so the British did a bad job of governing basically all of their colonies. And the Australians also rose up for kind of the same reasons that the Whiskey Rebels rose up. Uh, And this rebellion, uh, not us. Well, we also rose up because we were... Uh, mad about booze. <laughs> That's why we do this uh, podcast. We do this podcast because we have a lot of strong opinions about booze. Um, but known as the Rum Rebellion, this was a military coup and it was partially caused by rum policy, which took place in Australia in the early 1800s. Yeah, so in 1806, William Bly became the fourth governor of New South Wales. Good old Bill Bly. When he uh, arrived in Sydney in August, he already had a, a, a reputation of being a hard man, a harsh administrator. Uh, it's pretty likely that he was selected as governor for that exact reason. Uh, it was no surprise that he made enemies pretty quickly. One of Bly's first actions as governor was to use the colony's stores and herds to provide relief to farmers who had been severely affected by flooding, uh, a situation that disrupted the uh, <clears throat> a situation that had disrupted the barter economy in the colony. This earned Bly the gratitude of the farmers, but uh, the animosity of traders in the New South Wales Corps who had been profiting greatly from the situation. So Bly attempted to normalize trading conditions in the colony by prohibiting the use of spirits like rum as payment for commodities. Which definitely pissed off a lot of people. Um, Because that was their money. (laughs) That was their money. And they're like, uh, that's not cool. Um, But, you know, the farmers were were kind of okay with it because rum was only useful for them to the extent that they could trade it. And you take, they take that away. That actually makes their goods probably more valuable. Um, but there's another important figure in this in this whole episode named uh, John MacArthur. He's a British military officer, and he's kind of a early entrepreneur. He owned a lot of land, and he was he's kind of well known for his his wool innovations and Let did a lot of a lot of interesting things. He owned a lot of rum producing and <laughs> a lot of rum. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, owned a lot of rum also. I'm so he I'm, also I'm guessing. owned a lot of rum produ- production. Uh, yeah. And him and uh, Governor Bly didn't necessarily get along the best, um, and many, many of a lot of their issues that they clashed on were related to the rum trade. Um, in December 1807, MacArthur was ordered to appear in court for aiding in the escape of a convict. He kind of let him, let him onto a boat, and the boat escaped, and they weren't governor. Or the uh, governor wasn't too happy about that. Um, but unsurprisingly, MacArthur never appeared never uh, appeared in court, and with the support of six members of the court, who were all officers. Of this uh, of this military corps, the trial was dismissed, and they kind of just shoved it off. I'm like, yeah, we, don't, we don't need to worry about this. Uh, so Governor Bly then accused each of these men of mutiny, and he summoned Major George Johnston to deal with the matter uh, on January 24th of 1808. So on the morning of January 26th, 1808, Major George Johnston, rather than complying with Bly's orders to arrest MacArthur and the treasonous corps officers issued an order releasing MacArthur, who then drafted a petition calling for Johnston to arrest Governor Bly and take charge of the colony. So it was kind of a military junta. 
But at 6 p.m., the Corps marched to the governor's house to arrest Bly, and Captain Thomas Laycock eventually found Bly in full dress uniform behind his bed where he claimed he was hiding papers. Bly was painted as a coward for this, but he was likely hiding in order to escape and thwart the coup. So after Bly has been uh, deposed as governor and put under house arrest, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Joseph Favreau uh, became acting lieutenant governor of the colony. Uh, Favreau left Bly under house arrest and turned his attention to improving the colony's roads and bridges and public buildings, which he felt had been bad neglected. Uh, When there was no word from England, he summoned Colonel William Patterson in January 1809 to sort out matters. Uh, Patterson sent Johnston and MacArthur to England for trial and confined Bly to the barracks until he agreed to return to England. Uh, Patterson then left Favreau to run the colony, and the New South Wales Corps was recalled to England by the Colonial Office, and uh, Major Major General Lachlan Mackery, probably, mm-hmm. took over as governor on the 1st of January, 1810. And I didn't, I didn't actually put this, write this down, but it's kind of funny that uh, Mackery was really impressed with the way that Favreau kind of handled the situation, <laughs> and he recommended him to become the governor, or at least the lieutenant of governor of Tasmania, but when the British government found out about this, they're like, dude, you like kept the governor under lock and key. Like, you can't do that. And they actually ended up court-martialing him instead of making him lieutenant governor of Tasmania. Well, that's the British for you. And, you know, I mean, he was he was fine. Like, oh, you broke the rules. They kind of like forced him out of Australia, and, but he ended up, slap, like, slap on the he ended up having a relatively successful military career, but like he was, certainly wasn't promoted for this. Um, so the situation is like really funny. So like people, you did a great job. You're fired. Yeah. So people, people are mad about like policies around rum and also, and all sorts of just crazy things happening here. And then the governor comes in and was like, Hey, uh, I'm just going to make, make this thing illegal that you guys really like. And then he thinks he's in charge. Yeah. And then the military is like, no, you're not because we want to make more money. And it's just, it's just like this crazy, it's a really interesting because crazy circle of just nonsense going on it's an interesting commentary on political power like where does power rest in any in any given political ecosystem right does it rest with the person that is like said to be in power no basically never it certainly wasn't London. <laughs> yeah. does it rest with the people i mean it depends how empowered the people are and what the people mean right? and yeah who you mean by the people by the people i mean the the by the people i mean the yeoman farmer thomas jefferson um but does it rest with the the military or the wealthy in this case those were the same class mm-hmm. right the wealthy people were the new south wales corporation corporation or core new south wales core yeah. they were an actual branch of but the they were British sort military. of a corporation too. yeah i mean yeah <laughs> um, they were a like, branch of the us military but they were kind of on their own yeah how the us military they were the british, british military yeah. That that brings up a really interesting question about like what happens when you have a society where being in the military makes it extremely easy for you to enrich yourself, mm-hmm. and so you you draw uh, because when someone else has the power of the purse over the military and the soldiers have to answer to a civilian who controls their pay and their ability to buy shiny new swords for themselves and shiny new F-16s. Um, you, I think, are much less likely to see any kind of military takeover or, or severe militarization of, of, a, of, a, of a nation because, as it turns out, rich people hate giving away their money, and taxes largely target the rich. <laughs> but when, and this was the case in the Middle Ages as well, when military prowess and, 
and being a part of a military upper class is how you enrich yourself. And wealth largely descends from the king in these scenarios and from ownership of land. You see much more militarized societies. You see a much higher degree of warfare happening and in, in and warfare between nations. And one of the main reasons why, in my opinion, and this is, so there are some other people that think this as well, like Deirdre McCloskey, one of the main reasons why we now live in a society where there are fewer wars, largely speaking, and there's fewer conflict between neighboring countries is because rich people happened. A, a upper class of wealthy landowners became distinct from the military. And part of that is the professionalization of the military or the reprofessionalization of the military because the ancient Romans had a professional military as well. Right. Um, but the reprofessionalization of the military and the rise of a trading class. So this is all way off topic, but what you saw in, in New South Wales was the military was the ones who were had all the wealth and they were the ones who had all the power. And so they just kicked the governor out. But we also, I mean, what you also see is like, it didn't really last very long. Right. Well, like they tried this, but within a year, there was already a new governor in place. There was already, the British government was never really not in charge of the situation. Like they lost handle for maybe like six months or something, but like, in and that's the just end, because that's how long it takes a ship to sail right, from exactly. Australia yeah, to I mean, England. you can't yeah. go from England to Australia very fast. But, like, it, like you just there is an equilibrium of power here, too, and it wasn't with the military. No, the British sense. Empire was... The British Empire was Endlessly more powerful, yeah. Yeah, which I think is pretty crazy. And you know like, why it was more powerful? Because of the East India Company. Because yeah. of the trading class. <laughs> yeah. And they were willing to pay... And th those rich people were very willing to pay for a private military. <laughs> so, like... And for the military of England uh, more broadly. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it is funny how, like, when you have a massive empire, the amount that the rich are willing to spend to keep the hordes of poor suppressed through the use of a military kind of rises. <laughs> they, they get a little bit more generous with their money when they're staring, like, half a million disenfranchised people in their own country and, like, millions in India. Uh, in the face. Maybe we should talk about the Sepoy Rebellion sometime, but that's a pretty, that's a grim chapter of history. Um, but I think it's interesting to connect, to try to bring some connections between the Rum Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion, too, is like the cause here is like somewhat similar. I mean, they're very, very different circumstances. But to the extent that there is a similar cause, you have rum or whiskey kind of being banned or hard to make by the government. And then the people who have the self-interest in, in having that not happen are the ones who rise up and want to do something about it. And I think the biggest difference here is that where is like who has the military in each situation. So when the military is the one that's actually benefiting from kind of the illicit trade, they seem to kind of win in this situation because they're the ones that actually have the might. Whereas when you see in the Whiskey Rebellion in, in America, it was just a bunch of farmers. It wasn't really like people with military prowess. Some of them were veterans. And some of them, some of them were veterans. And some of them actually, up, in fact, I think many of them and some were of, veterans. Right, but they, they tried to put up a good fight. Well, they, but they still weren't. They weren't, well they weren't a military. Yeah. They weren't like an actual regiment of troops. Mm -hmm. And as I think that there's like you see a big difference there too. Is like whoever the actual concentration of power in that moment was not with the people yeah. who had the self interest in keeping. And keeping the regulators out. Yeah, this isn't a podcast about power politics, but it's funny how often we end up talking about it. Because it 
reaches into every a it's fun to talk about and it reaches into every aspect of human life like Mm -hmm. because booze is so fundamental to human life and because people are always trying to exercise power over one another often people are going to be using booze to exercise power over other people or exercising power over other people like to get booze Mm -hmm. (laughs) or like because of it i don't know what do you think josh one thing i think is really interesting is the the tendency of people to use alcohol as a medium of exchange because this isn't even like limited to like you know ye olden times um because i uh so i grew up down in florida you know hurricanes were a thing that happened a lot thing down there again now apparently yeah um god bless florida and i i don't remember like which hurricane this was coming through but i was young ish um and my area was more or less fine but uh, I remember seeing a news report from like an area that had been hit really hard. And this reporter was like kind of going in this guy's house who had kind of just like waited out the storm. Was, the, the neighborhood was like very flooded. And the topic of like money or something had come up. And the guy had said like, oh, like money's not going to do anybody any good right now. Like this is, this is my money right now. And he points to a table that is just stacked with beer. <laughs> So like beer's my money now <laughs> in a crisis, you know, awesome. fiat currency doesn't do anything for anybody, but yeah. apparently like it loses beer its value. Is, yeah. Beer is the thing. So it's, it's really interesting that like when, when we're in this situation where, you know, tr- traditional currencies like don't really matter, like alcohol seems to be like one of the first things we go to. Which yeah, I, weird. I don't know why. Maybe it seems like alcohol and like weapons. Yeah. Well, well it's, Bullets, yeah. And in, I, I mean, in, in seventy years, the currency will be bullets. Yeah, and, and in monetary, no, no, that's not. In monetary, in monetary theory, though, it, it like does make sense because, in order for money to to really to exist, it needs to be like sturdy. It needs to be portable. It needs to be divisible. Um, the divisible part sometimes really not as much, yeah. but the divisibility is important for like liquids, and that's, I think that's the main one of the main it's reasons. Important for gold is and gold is, is very divisible, relatively as well. divisible. Right, Rel- it's extraordinarily divisible. That's I mean, not not by a, like you can't just cut it in half, but yeah, well, like, you kind of can. Like a mint, no. you can with like the, the right means. With the right means, well, you can. You can heat yeah. gold. It, like you don't have to heat it to a very of an extraordinarily high temperature right. to melt it. Right. Yeah, sure, but like it's a very soft metal. Like sitting here right right now, if I wanted to buy something, I I couldn't like melt some gold down and give you half yeah, of it you could pull i could pour out like half of my whiskey bottle, right? right this yeah. is this is one of the reasons why jewelry is a thing because it you can if you really want something and they did this in the middle ages if you really really wanted something and you were wearing a lot of rings and you were a wealthy merchant you could pull a ring off and toss it on the table and you know oh that's valuable you know, so like you're right that it is weird how much we, i wonder why we turn to that's a great story by the way <laughs> I love that. I was going to say, like, I used to think, like, when the inevitable breakdown of Western civilization happens in three or four months, uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> it could be hey, sooner. We, we've survived could the be last, sooner if we get into that war. We've survived the last 10 or 11 months. I mean, if we, we get into that, war, into that shooting war with the North Koreans, I mean, this could, that could be over quick. Um, but I was going to say, like, stockpile, like, razors. And tampons, because, like, those are going to be currency. Yeah. Huh. Those are, like, necessities that people need to feel human. Right. I mean, I mean, and maybe alcohol is the same way. Yeah. Maybe I mean, it's a necessity yeah, yeah. that people need to... We, you know, touched on those themes when Dylan was on our podcast mm-hmm. about yeah. how booze is an essential humanizing element. I mean, I think part of it... Part of the reason that alcohol might be able to replace gold, not necessarily come alongside of gold, but replace gold, is, like, usually in a situation where you don't have a traditional money... You're going through some sort of crisis. 
you're not usually in a great spot. Usually, if maybe if, if you're in a good economic I spot, I mean, I don't think that you like, usually people have, in Appalachia were going through crisis. They were just it was just rural, but they were poor probably. Well, th- th- yes, but that doesn't mean that they were in like crisis. It's not like there sure. had been an earthquake and so they started using whiskey as currency. They used it because it was what was easily available. Sure. Sure, they, but, they needed to do something with all this damn barley. Like, sure. But what I'm saying is, like, most corn. most of the time when you don't have a currency, like, you're not necessarily in the best place, usually. Now, yeah, yeah. And, sure. and then there might be exception, exceptions to that. But generally, when you're not in a but good you're place... you're thinking of, like, usually, currency as fiat currency, right? Is that how you're... Well, gold's not a fiat currency. Gold is val- inherently valuable. Right, yeah. But I'm saying, like... A traditional medium. I, you know what? I really don't want to get into this, like, Hayekian <laughs> argument about... But, like, anytime, basically anytime you're anywhere that you have anything that's of perceptible value, you have currency. Like, if you have, like, a can of beans, that's a currency. If someone will exchange something with you for that. Sure, but a, like, but a true money is, like, a universally accepted medium fair, of exchange. Fair, fair. And so, like, you can't Uni- say that rum was universally within accepted within community. a given market. Yeah. But generally, like, when you see alcohol being used, is that that's not usually the case. I think maybe in the Whiskey Rebellion, that actually, it actually really was. Like, it actually was the money. Like, I think, I think the it kind of was, was a universal yeah. medium of exchange. Because here's the thing. The money that was printed by um, Congress was not considered to be very valuable. And I think, I'm, you know what? You would be more of well, an During the revolution, it was basically used. Yes, it was. This was before the era of, like, modern fiat paper. Like, when you printed money, it, there had to be a gold backing it or right. silver. We didn't have legal likely. tender laws. Yeah. But so, like, people didn't actually believe that the... <laughs> The money was any good because, like, I'm never going to see this silver. Yeah, I mean, that this allegedly. What's is actually covering. What's actually really cool though is that the market. So they didn't think Congress could enforce its. The market actually did adjust for that. So, so you had, you had promises. each bank in different regions of the United States early on that would issue their own currency. So it wasn't really government issued currency. So you would have like an Atlanta bank or a Philadelphia bank or a Boston bank, and r- depending on how far away you were from that bank, the currency would actually be proportionally worth less than the dollar amount that's printed on there. Mm-hmm. So when you were, say, like in, in Atlanta, the currency that has Bank of Boston on it, it's only going to be really worth like a $10 bill that has it's really only going to buy you $5 worth of like Atlanta bills. That's really worth strange. Worth of goods. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's that much harder to go. If, all the way up to it. All the way up Boston there to, to actually get, get what's yeah. worth it. That, um, that so, makes me very glad that we ended up with like a, a such a, a more universal medium. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely trade-offs. Maybe we should do an episode about alcohol as currency, like that specific. Topic. Yeah, I mean, we could probably. I'm sure I mean, we can find enough yeah. about it. You know, yeah. hey, you know what's really great about the dollar though? Doesn't give you cirrhosis of the liver. <laughs> I, I got it. He uh, got, got it. it. Got it. Another great thing about the dollar: not only is it worth joke. just as much between Atlanta and Boston, won't give you cirrhosis of the liver. Um, so I think uh, after I think that extended it. discussion of monetary policy, I think yeah. that's our yeah, uh, show for today. <laughs> um, if uh, if you enjoyed it, definitely feel free to subscribe and share. Uh, you can like us on Facebook as the Whiskey Rebels Podcast, or follow us on Twitter at Whiskey Rebcast. Uh, you can also leave us a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate that because that makes Please it do. easier for uh, people to find the show. Uh, this has been the Whiskey Rebels. I'm Josh Evans. I'm Drew Brackville. And I'm John Nelson. Enjoy our podcast responsibly. Bye.